Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzevin, and I'm here with a special guest co-host for this episode. He's the host of Pod for Good, a podcast for people who want to do good in the world, the CEO of Rant9 Productions, and he's also our editor, Jesse Ulrich. Hello, everybody. One of my favorite things about doing this podcast is getting to speak to people in the greater Boston Jewish community and beyond who are doing really innovative and exciting work. Our guest today is one of those people, Leora Malik, the executive director and co-founder of Beantown Jewish Gardens. Beantown Jewish Gardens focuses on Jewish education and teaching about the crucial issues of food justice, working for a sustainable food system, and building community through food and agriculture education rooted in Jewish text, tradition, and culture. We are so excited to speak to Liara about the work of the organization, pandemic gardening, food justice, and the foundational agricultural traditions of Judaism. Liara, thank you so much for joining us today on the Vibe of the Tribe podcast. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks. So we talked in our introduction a little about Beantown Jewish Gardens. Tell us a little bit more about how this organization got started and the significance of the name Beantown Jewish Gardens. Sure. I co-founded Beantown Jewish Gardens in 2011. And it was a time when there were and still are different grassroots Jewish environmental initiatives popping up all over the world, all over North America, And we were responding to the desire that there should be a network here in Greater Boston. So our name, Beantown Jewish Gardens, is a bit of a play on words. Beantown is a nickname for Boston, but beans are also an essential part of the growing process. When somebody's growing annual vegetables or crops, each year they need to be replanted Um, They take a lot of nutrients out of the soil and very often nitrogen is the biggest one. Beans add nitrogen to the soil and they're often used in between annual vegetable plantings as a cover crop. They help maintain the health of the soil, keep the moisture in there and adding those necessary nutrients into the soil is the inspiration for our tagline for Beantown Jewish Gardens that we are infusing the roots of the greater Boston Jewish community. When we first incorporated, we used the name Gane Beantown, which is Hebrew and would translate roughly to Gardens of Beantown. That's great, but what we found was actually having a name in Hebrew was not necessarily welcoming to a lot of people. And for folks who didn't know Hebrew, it was a barrier even before they got involved. So in shifting to use our English name, Beantown Jewish Gardens, more often, we were working to make our organization more welcoming, more inclusive right from the start. One of the goals of Beantown Jewish Gardens is to breathe new life into Jewish traditions, holidays, and political action by connecting Jews to the myriad agricultural and food traditions of our people. 
Judaism is built on the framework of ancient Israel's seasonal planting and harvest rhythms. What are some of the main ways that agriculture in ancient Israel shaped Judaism's development, calendar cycle, and rituals? A couple that I want to pick up on is the calendar cycle. We have an agricultural calendar that's adjusted so that our holidays fall in the appropriate agricultural season. So we have a a second month, the month of Adar, that gets added as a leap year. And that will adjust so that Passover happens in the spring at the end of the winter rains, at the start of the drier season, right when we want to harvest our barley, for example. When I think about agricultural practices that influence contemporary ritual, I think about Passover. Passover, the celebration of the barley harvest, when we start bringing barley into our granaries, if you will, um, we need to make sure that there's absolutely none of last year's crop still in storage that might spoil and then spoil all of this year's crop. So the cleaning, that really thorough cleaning, that getting into the corner, that getting all of the little bits and pieces and all of the possible contaminants is an effort to create a space where a new crop can come in and we feel confident that it will be safely stored for the upcoming year. Today, many of us do not have a granary in our backyard, right? But we do have kitchens, our refrigerators, our pantries, ovens, right? The cleaning that we do now is not as agriculturally based as it once was, but the ritual, I would say, is a direct lineage almost from that time. The whole underpinning of our calendar is an agricultural calendar. And the holidays have agricultural components to them. And on a personal level, that really speaks to me. Um, As an agricultural religion, sustainability is really built into that understanding of the agriculture. The laws that guided agriculture also guided society because agriculture guided society, right? This was a time when people weren't going to the supermarket to get their foods. They were, you know, going to their granary, going to their backyard kind of thing. The implications of all of those laws were far bigger than merely agricultural laws. They were really the laws that guided society. And when we think about sustainability, right, like what even is this word sustainability that we throw out there so often and is often overused? Sustainability is a system that focuses on meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of the future generations to meet their needs. So biblical agricultural law was sustainably focused in the sense that it was about the long-term relationship that the people had with the land and with each other and for future generations. So those social support networks are sort of built into our calendar cycle, into our holiday celebrations, into all of our rituals. And that's tremendously powerful. So for us here in North America, it can become easy to lose sight of that significance as our environment and seasonal climates are so different from the Middle East. What are some ways American Jews can reconnect with these important agricultural patterns? So you mentioned the diversity of the Middle East. It's also worth remembering there's tremendous climate diversity in the United States. And 
places like Florida or Southern California have a similar, more similar climate to the biblical land of Israel. Not the same, but similar enough so that they can be growing pomegranates or dates, things that we can't do here in the Northeast. Even to say what in the United States can we do to reconnect to these agricultural patterns is different in different regions of the United States. There is a growing national Jewish agricultural movement that's working to remind us of the agricultural underpinnings of all of the holidays, of our calendar cycle, of studying the books of rabbinic conversation, discussion, and wisdoms, particularly now thinking of the upcoming holiday of Shavuot. Right here we are in the Omer, we're counting towards Shavuot, where we received Torah. And also, it was one of the three big pilgrimage holidays to the temple. It was a harvest celebration. It was a celebration of the wheat harvest. At Passover, we celebrated the barley harvest. Here we are, Shavuot, we're celebrating the wheat harvest and our first fruits. And this is the grain that's going to make bread and sustain us. This is the foundation of what we eat. Um, they say, im en kemach in Torah, im en Torah in kemach. If there is no flour, there is no Torah. If there is no Torah, there is no flour. Torah is not made from flour, obviously, but this idea that we need both the physical sustenance, but also the spiritual sustenance. That's how I understand this quote, and that there's this balance. So, Thinking about the agricultural patterns is also thinking about the physical pieces that sustain us and also the spiritual pieces that sustain us. A lot of Americans, a lot of people don't have a relationship to agriculture, but they do have a relationship to food. So connecting people to agricultural patterns or cycles is often connecting people to their local foods. And when we teach, for example, about the seven species in Israel, Shavaminim, one of the great things there is that those are species that are native to the land of Israel. Here in New England, it's a fabulous opportunity to think about what are the species that are native to New England, right? How can we understand that parallel? But the foods that we eat at our holidays tie us to our family, to our culture, the history, where our family comes from. And we can see the commonalities. So thinking about Passover, there's haroset, right? This mortar that we eat. And there's a lot of regional variants that I think people are pretty familiar with at this point, right? Eastern European haroset is going to be heavy on the apples, something that grew in Eastern Europe. Whereas a North African haroset is going to have dates, apricots, things that grew local in North Africa. But I recently learned that the commonality in haroset, even though there's differences in ingredients, if you're looking at the agricultural cycle, you'd stored all of your fruits in the fall. So over the course of the winter, you're eating away at them. By spring, they're kind of mushy and not so great, maybe, right? That apple doesn't have that crisp bite to it. So it's actually spring is the perfect time of year to mush it all up with other stuff and create a mortar-like substance. So haroset, similarly in North Africa, right? Dates that you'd harvested in the fall, by the spring, they're mushy. You just want to grind them up with other stuff. Um, so regardless of what region you're in, there is that commonality. How can we apply the wisdom of Judaism's very specifically designated 
times of rest, like Shabbat, to our extremely busy and overworked lives here in America. I love Shabbat. Shabbat underpins all of the Jewish environmental understandings for me. It is rest for the sake of rest, not rest for the sake of work, which is a real paradigm shift if you think about it, because we're not resting so that we can do more work, but we're resting because there is value in resting. If we think about the story of creation of the world, right? Very beginning, Genesis, how was the world created? Creation was not complete until Shabbat was incorporated. Creation didn't happen, didn't finish on day six. Creation finished after Shabbat. And that speaks to the value of Shabbat in its own right. And it doesn't matter what your agricultural climate is, right? There's still that value. So Shabbat's an inspiration. It's a preview of the world to come. They say, you know, one Midrash, one story, why were Adam and Eve created on the sixth day? Because the first thing that they then got to experience was Shabbat. That was nice for them. (laughs) Good deal, right? Come into the world and... Shabbat. Shabbat, a vision of the world to come. So this upcoming Jewish year, 5782 on Rosh Hashanah this year, the new Shemitah cycle will begin. For those who may not be familiar with the term Shemitah or what it symbolizes in the Torah, and uh, what is it and why is it so important to what you're talking about right now? Sure. I think that Shemitah is Shabbat on a year cycle instead of a day cycle one way to think about it. Um, So we are coming up towards the Shabbat of Shabbatot, this year of Shabbat. And if we translate Shemitah, Shemitah is often translated to be sabbatical. A more appropriate definition might be release. So then the question is, what are we releasing in this year? Um, So there's two major components. One is the land, and we allow it to lie fallow during the Shemitah year. And the second is debt forgiveness that happens at the end of the second year. So this is a full societal release. Um, And still this question is, what are we releasing? But it's this opportunity to reset our obligations of debt, to the land of toil. It's a year societally to reset ourselves. And the thing about Shemitah that's so radical is that everybody does it at the same time. When we translate Shemitah to sabbatical, I think many people associate it with a sabbatical at a university where a professor after seven years, a tenured professor after seven years is given this year of sabbatical. But actually, the university works it out so that different professors take sabbatical in different years so that all of the classes are covered. But Shemitah is that everybody that same year takes the year of release. Um, So it's a very different way of thinking about things. So now, similarly to Shabbat, Shemitah doesn't just happen. There's preparation required. And we are right now, I like to think, in the year leading up to Shemitah, We're sort of at around lunchtime on Friday afternoon, right here, end of April, right? We're moving towards September, towards Rosh Hashanah. So if we're to think about it as this Shabbat that's coming up and it's kind of lunchtime, so 
we're, we're starting to get ready, right? We know what we have to do. We have our to-do list. We're crossing things off. We're moving. So that's, I like to think now we're kind of, maybe we just finished lunch even, right? So this is really the time to think about what we want the Shemitah year to look like societally, individually. There's lots of opportunities to learn about Shemitah. I recently taught a class at Hebrew College, Open Circle Jewish Learning. Some other folks have as well. There's Chazon Nationally has a blog regularly. The Jewish Farmer Network is teaching classes. There's really a lot of conversation within the Jewish agricultural movement to prepare for the upcoming Shemitah year that I find tremendously exciting. And I also just want to recognize that it's understood that Shemitah is mandated only in the land of Israel. So the recognition, the the commitments that are people people are making as to how they want to celebrate or recognize the upcoming Shemitah year are again this parallel. It's an analogy. It's it's not a direct mandate or understanding of Jewish agricultural law here in the diaspora. What makes gardening Jewish? Sure. I love that question. And I love posing that question to groups of students, actually, because they come up with the most creative things. And I have to tell you that unofficially, in my experience, not based on any kind of data, but elementary school students will most often tell me, kibbutz, like gardening Jewish kibbutz. <laughs> like that, that's what they got. Jews do agriculture there. And it's funny, but it's also, I think represents this notion that many diaspora Jews have that Jewish gardening can only happen in the land of Israel. So that's, you know, one piece I think that, you know, gardening Jewish can happen anywhere, gardening Jewishly, Jewish gardening. And the second piece, my background is as an educator. And to grossly overthink, there's two ways that you can teach about agriculture. One is very technical. You can talk about the pH in the soil. You can talk about um, what plants need, right, to survive and the chemistry of the different fertilizers. And that is tremendously important. But there's also value in appreciating and celebrating the miracle that is germination and the awe that is this this germination. It's, it's amazing if you think about it. You put this little seed underneath the soil and it sprouts and there's a plant and it grows fruit and you eat it. That is amazing. So I like to say that uh, that spirituality, that spiritual, that awe, that appreciation of the natural world, that's Jewish gardening. And also that God's kind of my co-gardener particularly with the miracle of germination, but also with the watering, raining thing, super helpful. Some days God really steps up. So I appreciate that as well. That sounds like a bumper sticker. God is my bumper sticker. (laughs) You and me both. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed me point to Miriam while you were talking. And because I had mentioned now that I'm in a rental house and we are, you know, building our own garden and I've had to learn about good dirt versus bad dirt and how you tell and what you need to add. And I, I know I was telling Miriam that there are tests you can buy to find out what the pH level of your soil is, blah, blah, blah. Um, Oklahoma gets a little weird when it comes to planting because at least Tulsa has a very low water table. It gets all complicated, but I've learned a lot that I didn't want to learn. 
about <laughs> certain things. What grows here well and when. And like right now, we have so much mint in our garden that I'm having to come up with. And by me, I mean my wife, Michelle, come up with alcoholic recipes we can add this mint to because we have so much of it. Just start exporting it, Jesse. Yeah. Who needs mint? Anybody? I'll take some mint. We are now selling mint at JewishBoston.com. Yeah. Just kidding. We're not. But contact Jesse. He yes. has mint. So let's talk about pandemic gardening, uh, which is apparently what everyone turned to once they had gotten over banana bread and the sourdough stages of the pandemic. How did Beantown Jewish Gardens pivot the work you were doing during this time? Sure. I want to also just say that there are uses beyond alcoholic beverages. I don't understand. <laughs> I've heard. I, I read it on the yeah. Internet and then, you know, it's true. Right. Um, one might be for Havdalah, right? When we smell Ooh, good. spices too often, I think there's this association with the spices for Havdalah to cinnamon, right? Like that is right. It. But it's not actually a blessing over cinnamon, right? So fresh herbs from your garden is a great place to start if you want to create some Jewish agricultural meaning to your personal Jewish rituals. And then you can have a mojito after. Uh, I, w- I will take that under yeah, advisement. An option. You'll, <laughs> you know, you only smell it. You don't eat it. So you could still then use it for your. That's such a great idea. A great like idea. you can actually integrate what's growing and in, in beyond just consuming, like eating what's in um, your garden. There are other uses in Judaism for, uh, for plants. I wonder if you, if you grew enough could you put it on top of your sukkah? Would that be kosher? I'm going to Google this later. I'm going to find mm. it. That would be a lot of mint. It would be but a lot I don't of know mint. if halachically, I'm, I'm digressing and I'll probably cut this part, but halachically, I'm not sure it's cool. But it would be fragrant. If you cut it, or if not as chach for your sukkah, as a natural decoration and aromatic also experience, true. right? For yeah. sure. Jesse, we're solving your problem. Yeah, <laughs> right. <that's great. laughs> Jesse, you also touched on the issue of water, but at least here in the Northeast, we've been on the verge of drought. We've been in intense drought for the last couple of years. And already two weeks ago, the state of Massachusetts declared drought in all regions except for one early April. This is unprecedented. We don't have the snow cover. This is a very big deal. There's a lot of farmers, agriculturalists on a statewide, on a region-wide level who are very concerned. Also, South Dakota, like it's bigger than just the Northeast, but drought and water. West, Yeah, I I know like the multiple Western states. Oklahoma, I don't think is included in that, but all the Western states, I think, have already declared a drought and not not great. So pandemic gardening. So last spring around this time, we were in the midst of conversation with Vibe of the Tribe to talk about filming a live podcast recording at the Jewish Sustainable Food Fest scheduled I remember. for May 2020. I recall. And we were forced to take a step back, right? We canceled that event and and see what was percolating in the time. And yes, banana bread, yes, sourdough, and yes, home gardens. And we, I started getting all of these inquiries from, you know, what do you think of this raised bed? Friends were texting me like, I found this. Should I buy this? Is this good? To, you know, inquiries via Beantown Jewish Gardens. And so 
we are a community building organization. That's what we do. We connect people. We're network weavers across denominations, across ages, greater Boston geography, right? Stoughton to Marblehead to Burlington. So as a Jewish community group, seeing the surgeons in home gardenings, that felt like a space for us. And we launched the Jewish Volunteer Gardening Brigade because that was how we could utilize our network. And we matched some of these newer gardeners with gardening mentors. And we said, here's how we're building community. We're creating this Jewish gardening community. Um, And it was incredibly affirming. People were very excited. We did some online forums at the end of the season. We did some garden tours around Sukkot which was fun. The downside is around Sukkot in New England, there's actually not a lot to see in people's gardens. So the garden tours were fun, but not necessarily offering some of those technical pieces that people were excited about. So this year we've created a bit more structure. We have monthly meetups. We're doing some garden tours in June. All of our garden tours are socially distant, out Doors. We keep our groups to less than 10 people. We've been doing some more online learning and forums. We will have some an end-of-season Sukkot celebrations, socially distant, outside. Somebody said their goal last year in joining the brigade was that they wanted to grow food so that they would go to the grocery store less often. And I think that speaks to where people's minds were at. We saw shortages, distribution shortages, supply chain shortages in seeds. Farmers were incredibly busy last spring. And so it's really been an opportunity for people to learn about food and about building relationships as well. We had somebody in her feedback, she said, I wanted to connect with other Jewish gardeners and also have a chance to learn. Both of my needs were met. We found that people were learning as they went through the course of the season and were already setting goals for 2021. And I think that that provided people an inspiration in a really dark time last summer also. And I loved it when people were like, so next year I'm going to, you know, build up my raised beds and and figure out, you know, and not plant these two plants together. And um, so I loved seeing that enthusiasm. We are recording this in April when a lot of planting is happening in New England right now. And you just mentioned something that I think is really important. What to expect when starting a garden for the first time? What are some realistic goals that new gardeners can can set for themselves or ways to think about it once they're just starting to be at the point of like, yes, I'm going to start a garden now. What am I doing? Yeah, I get that question a lot. And the first thing I say is, what is your goal in gardening, right? So you say, what, what are some realistic goals to set? I'd say, why, why are you gardening in the first place? Do, food or flowers? If your garden is about engaging your toddler in love of the earth, then you might want to get over when the rabbits eat your tomatoes because it's not the goal, your goal wasn't necessarily to grow tomatoes. Your goal is to instill a love of the earth in your toddler. And so I think it's really important to recognize that first. Second, you have to decide if you want to grow food or flowers. Like, what's your point? If you're growing food, 
as Jesse mentioned, you really need to know what is in your soil. Specifically, you want to know if there's heavy leads in your soil that you don't want to be drawing up into your food. So figuring out what your goals are is primary. And then the other piece I encourage people to do when they're thinking about gardening is start noticing the sun. Figure out which direction is south. We're here in the Northern Hemisphere, so south is going to provide you the most sunlight. And notice when your garden gets sun at different times of the day. And that can be very fun to do year-round, not just in the spring, but noticing when the sun comes over the horizon, when it shines through your windows, when it hits your garden, which parts of your garden can be a really fun learning opportunity. And then the other place to start, I truly believe, is in your neighborhood. We launched the Jewish Volunteer Gardening Brigade because people were gardening in their yards. And I and many others walking around, you saw gardens in people's yards, right? They were popping up everywhere. In my experience, people who are gardening love talking about their gardens. They really ad nauseum love talking about their gardens. And I'm happy to talk to people about their gardens for hours, right? Some of my friends and family, a little less tolerant at this point, but um, <laughs> talking to your neighbors, when somebody's out front working on their garden, they're the perfect person to ask questions. Why did you, I'm just curious, why did you do that? Um, and sometimes there's real intention and sometimes it just happened and there's learning there. Um, but as a community building organization, I think that gardening provides tremendous community building opportunities. And I encourage anybody who's thinking about gardening to talk to their neighbors about what they're doing. The garden that you really like, tell them you really like it. And they might offer you some plants, right? Who knows? They might offer you some extra mint. Right. <laughs> there you go. You could offer them some mint in exchange. Right. She's like, I have mint. There you go. In addition, in addition to Judaism teaching us about caring for the earth, taking these pauses agriculturally, we are also taught to care about each other. There is a famous Talmudic Aramaic phrase that says, Kol Yisrael Aravim Zebazeh, all Israel is responsible for each other. America has a huge food inequality and sustainability uh, problems, <laughs> issues. What issues are we facing as a society here in the Northeast? And what is Beantown Jewish Gardens doing to help locally? COVID really amplified the inequities in our systems and amplified the resilience in our local networks. The breakdown in some of our supply chains internationally, but also nationally, really forced people to look at their local networks. In food, for sure, also beyond the food system, uh, the mutual aid networks that sprouted up in many municipalities, I think are representative of that. Food is paramount, but it was really an affirmation for us as a local community building organization to see this surge in local community resilience. So opportunities to grow your own food, to know your neighbors who are growing their own food, or to support our local farms. Local farms last year saw 
exponential interest. Um, people who were thinking they were going to travel, but then realized they weren't going to travel, were signing up for community-supported agriculture, CSAs at local farms. There was, I think, a period of two weeks, maybe in March, that every farm just sold out. It was phenomenal. I think people realized the value of those local networks. So that, I hope, continues. The appreciation also for agriculture workers as essential workers, I think, is something we're learning from this. But we're doing it. There's tremendous opportunity for education um, and taking action. And sometimes people think, oh, I can grow food in my backyard and feed hungry people. And the reality is the amount of food you're going to grow in your backyard is probably not going to help significantly on a regional level. With tremendous kavod, with tremendous respect, the food bank doesn't want your three tomatoes. They, they don't. It's not worth their time and energy um, to take those three tomatoes. There are some local food pantries, and I encourage people, if they're going to get involved, to get involved on a local municipal level. There's a lot of public-private partnerships. Food aid has moved beyond the soup kitchen in the basement church on a municipal level, and most municipalities at this point are supporting a food aid network in their region. I was speaking to somebody the other day about the network, the infrastructure for hunger relief that we have in greater Boston. And this time last year, the media was showing long lines of cars, people picking up at food pantries. And remarkably, we had less of that in greater Boston because of the strength of the hunger relief network that we have in Greater Boston. The Greater Boston Food Bank has over 500 member agencies that they supply. And over the last decade, there's been an increased emphasis on providing fresh produce and whole grains. It's really no longer considered acceptable to give food that's only non-perishable canned goods. And that's really a shift in the last decade. You see it with the USDA recent farmers to families food boxes. You see it in our local food banks. So when we talk about how people can get involved on a local level with food aid, there's a lot also on a state level and advocacy that can always, there's always advocacy to be done on a state level. If you care, let your legislators know Currently, the Massachusetts Food Systems Collaborative has some advocacy sessions. There's a bunch of bills coming up that relate to farmland protection, conservation, affordability, who has access to farm land, um, and to the funding to some of the historically disadvantaged communities lack access to the capital to then access farmland. Um, there's also some bills around the Healthy Incentives Program, which leverages SNAP, formerly known as food stamps, to allow SNAP to be used directly to purchase directly from farmers fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, These are things that need to be um, supported at a statewide level. Farm to school initiatives, also some state inspection program, increasing capabilities there. So there's a lot that can be done also on a statewide level. 
We're also blessed with Family Table, a very strong kosher food pantry here in Greater Boston. They have three locations. They have monthly donations. There's opportunity to volunteer on a regular basis at all three of those locations. All food pantries have seen an increased need uh, over the last year. And there are the networks to respond to that need that people can step into and volunteers. And so really what we're trying to do at Beantown Jewish Gardens is tap people into the best ways that they can help. Maybe it's growing food and giving it to their neighbor. We don't know what happens inside our neighbor's houses on a very local level. Um, There's a great organization, the Boston Area Gleaners, that mobilizes volunteers to go out to farms when a farmer has finished harvesting from a crop and it's not really worth their while to pay their staff to harvest the crop, the Boston Area Gleaners will take volunteers, they'll harvest what's left, and then they have the network to donate it in coordination with the Greater Boston Food Bank on a local level. So getting that produce out there using volunteer labor, rescuing leftover cuisine that works more with catered food, food link. On a local level, on a federal level, there's a lot happening everywhere. Specifically, I think it was last week, the USDA just announced that it would be extending universal free lunches through the upcoming 2021-22 school year. There's an estimated 12 million youth who are experiencing food insecurity. This is really significant federal initiative. You know, there's a lot to be watching federally in terms of farm bill conversations and food aid as well. So how can folks in the Boston community get involved with Beantown Jewish Gardens? Great question. We would love to have you. (laughs) We right now are not planning any large community-wide events the way we have historically. Right now, it's really an emphasis on gardening and understanding the food system. We would love to have folks join the Jewish Volunteer Gardening Brigade as a new gardener or as a mentor, it's an opportunity to connect with resources closer to home. You don't when you Google, you find somebody on YouTube, you don't you don't know where they are, what they're doing, what their background is. Um, so the, we sort of offer a vetted network of support for gardeners with some local opportunities, outdoor, socially distant, uh, to see and experience and ask questions and connect with others. You could check out our website, beantownjewishgardens.org, and find out more information. Jesse, we can match you up with somebody who knows what to do with all that mint and how to find South. Yeah. I'm just there to help. <laughs> yeah. Leora, thank you so much for joining us today on The Vibe of the Tribe and explaining all of these things about gardening and the Jewish agricultural cycle. This is so, so fascinating. What Miriam said. Thank you so much. Thank you to Leora for joining us. Thank you, Jesse, for being my co-host for today. And thank you to everyone out there for listening. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and review The Vibe of the Tribe wherever you listen to pods and follow at Jewish Boston on social media. Stay safe, wear a mask, and remember that caring for the earth is a Jewish value. <laughs> <laughs>